Good morning. Well, this is one of my house plants. As you can see, it's not doing too well. In fact, a couple of months ago, it was doing so poorly, I cut it all the way back, and all I had was three little stems sticking out. I thought, well, I just probably should just throw it away. And am I doing something wrong? There you go. But the stems were green, and I thought, I'll just leave it in the sunshine, and I'll water it when I water my other plants. Sure enough, after a few weeks, it started to, we had little, little leaves popped out. I was kind of surprised, actually. And, and now you can see there's like a little tiny bud there, and there's a little bud here, and a little one here. Not dead, it's alive. <laughs> I couldn't believe it. Now, I know it's not very But um, I'm not, and it's not as beautiful. I have other house plants. It's not as gorgeous as they are, but I'm not comparing it with other house plants. I'm comparing it with could have been dead, but it's not. It's alive. Sorry. Hopefully this will work. Thank you. Yeah, thank you, Justin. It's alive. And how do I know if it's alive? It's producing. It has leaves. It's telling me, I'm not dead. I'm alive. Well, there are probably no more controversial statements in your Bible than these two. I'll do like this and see if that helps. Faith without works is dead. That's the first one. The second, a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. These statements seem to go against everything that Paul taught about so eloquently in his letters. How can we reconcile these statements? By James saying that, uh, with Paul saying that by grace we have been saved through faith, and this is not of our doing, it is a gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. That's Ephesians 2, 8, 9. Or that we have a righteousness not of our own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. That's Philippians 3, 9. We could find a lot of other verses like that, but the point is, how are both Paul and James correct? First, both Paul and James would agree that our salvation comes through faith alone. We looked at James 1.18 last week where James says that by God's will, by his choice, we were reborn by the word of truth in other words, the saving work of Jesus, the gospel. In our lesson today, James affirms that Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. James and Paul stand firm in this truth. Our salvation, our confidence that we are reckoned with him for eternity, 
is only through faith in the saving work of Jesus, his death and resurrection on our behalf. Second, both Paul and James would agree that that faith in Jesus, that saving faith, is worthless if it is not demonstrated by something tangible, something real, something that is alive, that it demonstrates that it's alive. Paul, in his famous description of salvation by grace through faith, in Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, goes on to say in verse 10, for we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared before him that we should walk in them. In Galatians 5, 5, Paul proclaims that through the Spirit, by faith, we eagerly await for the hope of righteousness. This is an opposition to earning our righteousness through the keeping of the law. We, we agree with that. And then in verse 13 four, and 14, he says, For you were called to freedom, brothers. Only do not use your freedom, but through love serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in this one word, he says. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Sound familiar? <laughs> there are three erroneous camps we can fall into when we talk about faith and works. The first one says faith or works. Take your pick. Either one is a path to heaven. James dis dismisses this entirely. Through 20. The two, faith and works, cannot be separated. Similarly, one could say, I have faith, tremendous faith, glorious faith, and that's enough. James says, great. Where's the evidence of your faith? A third camp says we must add works to our faith for our salvation. We believe, but we still have to do something more. This says faith and works saves us. It is this belief that Paul argues against in his letters. I believe it is this last camp, faith and works, that many people believe that James is advocating. But adding works to faith to secure our salvation is not James's teaching. James agrees with Paul that our faith and trust in Christ alone affects our salvation. But if that faith doesn't somehow, in some way, reveal itself in our words and deeds, that is not saving faith. It's not real faith. It's not, it's not a living faith. It's not showing that it's alive. A faith that clings to Christ alone will manifest itself through our deeds by works that are initiated and empowered by the Spirit that bring glory to God and that are done out of love for others. James and Paul agree we are saved by faith and that, life, that faith is life-transforming expressing itself in deeds of justice and the fruit of the Spirit. In other words, it's not a question of 
faith, or works. It's a question of a dead faith or a living faith. Living faith, genuine faith, is justified by our good deeds. There are two meanings of justified in the Bible. One that we see often, God does when a person comes to faith in Christ. God declares us righteous. He changes our guilt and condemnation to acquittal and acceptance. You probably have heard the phrase, just as if I had never sinned. But there's another way that justified is used in the Bible. There's a sense of showing something to be right, to be vindicated. In Matthew eleven nineteen, Jesus says that wisdom is justified by her deeds. In other words, a wise person is proven to be wise by the wise things they say and do. A person wouldn't really be called wise if they only ever did foolish things. In James' example, Abraham believed him as righteousness. He then demonstrated the validity of that faith when he was obedient about sacrificing Isaac. That obedience did not save him. He wasn't made righteous by his obedience. It was his belief in God. And that belief was evident through his obedience. Abraham affirmed the authenticity of his faith in God when he followed God's command. His faith was alive, not dead. This is the heart of the book of James, and all the rest of his teachings flow from this. If we say we have faith in God, then we will allow the Holy Spirit to work in us to follow, love others as ourselves. Faith in Christ means living out our obedience to God. And the way we do that is almost always done in community. James exhorts us to be spiritually mature Christians, as we saw last week, living well with others in Christian community. This manifestation of the Spirit in our life will help us to withstand trials and temptations even when we're surrounded by a hostile environment. So let's look at a few examples of how that living faith should be demonstrated from our passage today. The first way that living faith is demonstrated Bible teacher J. Vernon McGee said it succinctly, do not profess faith in Christ and at the same time be a spiritual snob. James says, in effect, that God does not treat us according to the color of our skin, the size of our bank balance, the number of degrees we have after our name, or the place we hold in social hierarchy. All these things leave God totally unimpressed. So why would we discriminate in our dealings with others based on these artificial categories? James then cites the royal law, James 2.8, which we've talked about quite a bit already. He may call it royal because it is sovereign over all others. As we just discussed, Paul says in Galatians 5.14, 
that the whole law is summarized in this statement, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Loving others is the highest validation of our saving faith. It's the greatest evidence of a living faith. Does it seem odd that James compares favoritism with adultery and murder? Is favoritism really so bad? Kent Hughes comments that it may seem like James is making a big deal out of a rather common uh, sin of favoritism. I mean, after all, everyone does it. But Hughes goes on to say, favoritism indicates the tilt of one's soul. Christians who practice favoritism are flagrant lawbreakers. And lives of favoritism are lives in jeopardy. Favoritism is adultery with wealth and the murder of the worth of the poor. James is speaking some hard truths here. He's saying that the law of liberty, which he repeats from chapter 1, is a much higher standard than the law of Moses, which told us not to commit adultery and not to commit murder. These are negative commands. The law of liberty is a freedom from bondage and judgment, but it's a freedom to love and mercy in the Holy Spirit. Jesus tells his disciples in John 13, 34, and 35, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. He repeats that three times. This is the law of liberty. There's a wonderful story about C.S. Lewis told by Bible scholar John Phillips. C.S. Lewis was a, became a Christian as an, adu- an adult and decided it would be appropriate for him to join a local church. There he found himself in the company of that very collection of neighbors he had fought so diligently before to avoid. The local grocer came sidling up to him to unctuously present him with a hymn book. He looked around and noticed the man over there had boots that squeaked. The woman in front of him was wearing a ridiculous hat, and the man behind him sang off-key. He found himself drawing the unwarranted conclusion that these people's faith must also be ridiculous. Only later did he learn that Satan himself, that some of these people, in fact, were in fact devout, well-taught, and valiant Christians, believers whom Satan himself had reason to fear. It is a great mistake to judge people by their appearance, and it's a great mistake to not love others as ourselves, to allow mercy to be the guiding factor in our interaction with others. In this next section, James will speak of the living faith that is exemplified in deeds of love and mercy toward others. And as we've said, this is not a contrast between faith and works but between a dead faith and a living faith. William Barclay puts it this way, works do not save, but works show. Works do not redeem, 
but works reveal. Works reveal what is in the heart. Works do not effect salvation, but evidence it. James will say that even orthodoxy, proclaiming that we believe in God, is useless if it is unproductive of good deeds. I mean, after all, the demons profess faith in God or belief in God. James gives, gives us examples of dead faith, one that gives verbal assent to belief, but then ignores the needs of others. He then gives us examples of saving faith, the kind that manifests itself as genuine. He gives us two examples. It's interesting that those two examples are Abraham and Rahab. Abraham is a patriarch. Rahab is a woman. Abraham is the father of the Jews. Rahab is a Gentile. Abraham was a righteous man. Rahab was a prostitute. Abraham was wealthy. Rahab lived in a brothel. They would appear to have absolutely nothing in common, but they both have a faith that proved itself as genuine. How do we know their faith was genuine? By their works. Their belief determined how they behaved. Abraham was asked to sacrifice his own son. And Rahab was asked to put her own life on the line to save two Hebrew spies. Their deeds justified their faith. Their deeds gave proof that their faith was authentic. Their faith was alive. We must note that the demonstration of their faith was not in keeping with the Mosaic law. It was not in Sabbath observance or dietary restriction or ritual practices. Abraham lived before the law was given, and Rahab was a Gentile. She wouldn't have known the law. Yet they believed, and their life gave proof of their faith. Both Abraham and Rahab are in the Hebrews Hall 11 or the Hebrews 11 Hall of Faith chapter, extolled for their extraordinary faith. The list of men and women in Hebrews 11 have potent faith, a living faith, a faith that showed itself in good works. We know and have studied Abraham's obedience to sacrifice Isaac. I love this description of Rahab's faith, again by J. Vernon McGee. That woman living there in the city of Jericho jeopardized her life by turning her back on her old life and on her own people. What was gained to her became loss. She did not say to the Israelite spies, I'll just stand on the sidelines when you enter the city and sing, praise God from whom all blessings flow. She did not say, hallelujah, praise the Lord. She said to them, I'm going to do something. I will hide you because I believe God is going to give the people of Israel this land. We have been hearing about you for 40 years, and I believe God. My friend, McGee finishes, she believed God and she became involved. She was justified before God by her faith. Don't forget, 
Jesus is a, is a descendant of Abraham, but he's also a descendant of Rahab. At this point, James shifts to the power of words and our self-control in speaking. In this entire study in the book, book uh, in Wisdom that we've been doing, isn't it interesting how often this topic has come up, are the, the are, are the things that we speak. Obviously, the wise person, the person bound by the law of liberty, the royal law, will exhibit con- control over the words we say. The point in this passage is that words can have a powerful effect. Their impact is vast, both to heal and restore, but also to injure and devastate Yet the control mechanism seems so small, right? It's a word, just an exhalation of breath over our tongue and our lips. That's all. And we rationalize the poison in a small word by saying things like, and by the way, I've said all of these things, by saying things like, well, somebody had to say it. I was just venting. I needed to get that off my chest. I can't help how I feel. Maybe it will do them some good. And my all-time favorite, I wasn't really gossiping. I was just sharing a prayer request. Peter, in Matthew 26, was told on the night of Jesus' arrest that his speech betrayed him. In other words, the people in the courtyard of the high priest could tell he was from Galilee. So our speech betrays who we really are. And the shocking thing is that the same mouth that commits this evil can also praise God. How can this be? I read an illustration recently. Um, If water from the tap, if water from my tap alternated between fresh, clean water sometimes, but then other times putrid, poisonous water came out, would I be okay with that? Would I think, oh, no problem, my water's fine. Really? Would I risk drinking from such a tap? Would I give that water to my grandchildren? James 3.8 says that no human being can tame the tongue. Well, that seems like a downer, doesn't it? So if no one can tame the tongue, what's the point of this section? Self-control, including control over our words, is always under the providence of the Holy Spirit. No man or woman is able to control the words we speak. Only the indwelling and empowering of the Spirit can affect this change. As by faith we allow the Spirit to transform our hearts and minds, we will gain control over the words we speak so that our words are dominated by love for our neighbors, by mercy and grace, by a respect for all people regardless of their status in life. In other words, by daily actions that proclaim the authenticity of our faith. Well, since we spent last year studying Acts, I thought it would be helpful to take a moment and look at the narrative in Acts 15, where we see James act and speak. The the events of 
of Acts 15 occurred after the book of James was written. What can we learn about the saving faith of James in this passage that might shed light on our lesson today? Did James live out his own teaching? Acts 15 records the Jerusalem Council in which the Jewish leaders in Jerusalem were concerned about all the Gentile converts that were coming to Christ. Many of those Jerusalem Jews, some of them former Pharisees, believed that true membership in the faith and fellowship of Christ required strict observance of the Jewish laws and rituals. Paul and Barnabas, if you remember, disagreed. They saw it as an attempt to pile on the works of the law as a condition to our salvation in Christ. In other words, faith and works. This was a huge difference, and it could have easily split the, two, the church into two warring factions. Paul and Barnabas travel from Antioch, which was the center of all of these Gentile conversions. They travel from Antioch to Jerusalem to iron out the differences. Peter first stands up and affirms that all people, Jews and Gentiles, are saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus. Paul and Barnabas then share with the assembly the marvelous things that God had done through them with the Gentiles. Finally, James stands up and he confirms the true salvation of these Gentiles and then asserts that no conditions must be placed on the, the Gentile Christians for salvation or for Christian, full Christian fellowship. With that principle established, James then tackles the question of social conduct. He asks the Gentiles to extend courtesy and grace to certain Jewish scruples. The voluntary restrictions he proposes were associated with pagan idolatry and heathen temple worship and would offend and hurt Jewish sensibilities. In these areas, James urges a cautious and loving approach by the new Gentile believers. In essence, he asks them to practice the royal law, the law of liberty, showing love for others. Well, what can we learn about James from this episode so much? Number one, what a leader. <laughs> Once James had spoken, and verse 28 says the Holy Spirit confirmed, the council followed his advice. To have that kind of authority, James must have been greatly respected for his wisdom and insight and for his own moral character. Number two, James was not daunted by the popularity and success of others. It would have been oh so easy to raise his hackles a bit at Paul coming here and saying, and, and, and basically saying, uh, and boasting about the marvelous works that he had done among the Gentiles. But there's no evidence of that. He could also have been defensive about the number of Gentiles joining the church and maybe overtaking the Jewish wing. I mean, that actually is what happened. The Gentiles took over. No such concern is evident in James. He's generous in spirit. 
Number three, we see James's conviction that it was by faith that salvation is secured, not by works of the law. There is no doubt in James's speech that the Gentile conversions had already been accomplished, independent of conformity to the law. These guidelines for social living were practical helps in how to live the Christian life in love and service to others. Number four, this story exemplifies James' own strong personal belief in the evil of prejudice. Among Christians, there are no distinction. He quotes Amos and affirms that this was God's plan all along to include Gentiles in the family of God. Number five, James may, have not been, may not have been the theologian that Paul was, but he was most certainly the caring pastor. He didn't get carried away with intellectual arguments. He immediately goes for the practical answer. I always like to be in a meeting with someone like that. <laughs> what is this going to look like today in the real, real world that we all live in? What's the solid, workable solution that will help us through this dilemma. Finally, number six, James wants us to cultivate practical godliness. The Jewish believers could have said, oh, how nice is it that Gentiles have come to Christ and then had nothing to do with them. We know from Galatians that this was the error that Peter was very close to falling into. That is not James's way. He was concerned that all believers should be accepted with love and compassion, that mercy should triumph over judgment. James's message in the book of James and in his leadership in the Jerusalem Council is that a living faith is robust, vigorous, and tangible. There's a poem written by Wilbur Reese that goes like this. I would like to buy $3 worth of God, please. Not enough to explode my soul or disturb my sleep, but just enough to equal a cup of warm milk or a snooze in the sunshine. I don't want enough of God to make me love a black man or pick beets with a migrant. I want ecstasy not transformation. I want warmth of the womb, not a new birth. I want to buy a pound of the eternal in a paper sack. I would like to buy $3 worth of God, please. Can you hear James speak out against such shallow, insignificant, bogus faith? He says to all of us, if you really believe in God, if you really put your trust in the Lord Jesus, if you have true faith, your life will demonstrate it. It may be as simple as being kind to an unlovely person or speaking a gentle word even when you're upset or angry. But it will be real and it will be genuine it will bring glory to God, and it will show love for others. 
Let's pray. Dear Lord, we love you and we believe in you. You have saved us for all eternity. We pray our lives give evidence of our faith. We want to live for you. We want to show love for others. Lord, empower us by your Holy Spirit. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you.